The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're zooming down to the molecular level and finding lessons that apply when we zoom back out and look at food chains and ecosystems. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Sean Carroll, an award-winning scientist, writer, educator, and film producer. He is Vice President for Science Education of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and Professor of Molecular Biology and Genetics at the University of Wisconsin. He is the author of five books, including Remarkable Creatures, Epic Adventures in the Search for the Origin of Species, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, The New Science of Evo Devo and the Making of the Animal Kingdom, and his most recent, The Serengeti Rules, The Quest to Discover How Life Works and Why It Matters, which he's here to talk to us about today. Sean, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. So this book is about rules that govern living things at two very different scales. The scale we live at as humans, I've sort of been thinking of it as the ecological scale, uh, I guess, and also at a molecular scale. Those are two scales I wouldn't expect would have a lot of crossover. No, I don't think um, biologists in general think about those two different scales in this, you know, on the same day. Um, but I was I was prompted to see whether or not we could um, bring those two scales together and even bring those two tribes of biologists together. And that's what I attempted to do in the book. Has this been done more widely in the scientific discourse or is this something that you're kind of trying to do for the first time? Uh, I think it's, uh, I think I'm the first shot at it. Um, the background of that is I'm a molecular biologist. I've worked all my life at the molecular scale, sort of inside animal bodies. And when I found myself out on the Serengeti of uh, East Africa, I was confronted with the animal kingdom that I had studied at that scale my whole life, but I didn't understand anything of what I was looking at, how it worked um, out in front of me. And I thought um, that that was a huge deficit on my part. And that as I, I thought I really should try to learn a lot more. And, and when I did, I, I saw some opportunity to bring those scales together. So how does a molecular biologist get to the Serengeti? What brought you there, sir? Uh, I, I think it was uh, a long delayed uh, from my childhood. I was interested in animals as a kid, as I think many biologists get started that way. And, um, but I was led into sort of, I'll call it indoor research, you know, by college time. And um, hadn't done much field work other than sometimes going out with colleagues who were doing some interesting things in uh, various places. And uh, there I was in my early 50s and the places like the Serengeti that I had seen on television and read about, I'd never been to. And I was really concerned from things I was reading about, you know, what was happening with elephants and what was happening with encroachment upon some of these wild areas that I better get there soon if I wanted to see it in, in its more natural state. And so, um, and, and fortunately the timing was such that my kids were grown and I could bring the whole family. So we, we went on a typical tourist safari and it was, uh, it was better than I ever imagined. So the title of the book is Serengeti Rules, which is also the name of the rules you talk about in the book. So why name this rule set after the Serengeti in particular? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, you can see all these rules in play in the Serengeti with animals that are familiar. So, you know, lions and zebras and buffaloes and elephants and all that. And sometimes I think making science uh, understandable, making it approachable, it, the, the more familiar you're dealing with, the better. 
And the second is a little more philosophical point, which is really the Serengeti and that kind of ecosystem is where we started out as a species and where our ancestors were for several million years. So on the way to the Serengeti, the most common route, the sort of the eastern side of the Serengeti takes you up over in Gorogoro Crater, this huge extinct caldera, and then down the slopes of the Gorogoro Crater past Olduvai Gorge. And Olduvai Gorge was made famous by Marion Lewis Leakey, who uncovered some of the first uh, hominid fossils out of East Africa there. And so you realize that, you know, we, our ancestors have a, had a presence in this area for several million years, and we sort of grew up around these large animals. And this, while the species are not exactly the same, the, the diversity is very similar of predators and large grazers and things like that um, have been around that area for several million years as well. So the Serengeti is, is our home. Okay, so at both the sort of ecological and molecular levels, there are so many different pieces and creatures interacting together in really complex ways. But you argue in this book that there are a simpler set of logical rules that govern a lot of what we see. So before we get into the specific rules, can I ask you about that simplicity? I mean, is there any caution we should have about potentially boiling really complex interactions down to any set of simple rules? Um, look, I think you know, science and, and biology, uh, you know, is, is a quest for generality. And if you're not searching for generalities, you know, you're going to just be overwhelmed by, you know, what, what some have called an infinitude of particulars. So that's a great, the, the, that's a great phrase. <laughs> sort of the, the art in this business is to, you know, make representations of the, of the real world. So you could say, yes, there's some caution, but let me, let me kind of make it a little more comfortable. It's about how much, how much you want, how specific you want to make those rules at different scales. In general, picture this. Inside a cell is really a society of molecules, some interacting with a certain subset of others. And inside an organ is a society of cells, some interacting with a subset of others. And inside your body is a society of organs that are communicating with each other, you know, through your bloodstream or through your nervous system. So, Biologists for a long time have wanted to understand, you know, the the important members of those societies and, and and how you know how they work. And out on in nature is a society of creatures, animals and plants interacting with each other. So if you think that you know each of those scales is a is a matter of interaction, and the quest for the scientists is to understand the meaningful interactions. Then you sort of at least say, well, okay, I, I understand that no matter what scale I'm talking about, I'm talking about interactions. Now, are there some ways those interactions take place that are similar across those different scales? And that's, you know, maybe that's what we can dive into. Okay, so you start this book about ecology at the molecular level. So let's start there, too. Um, first of all, why did you want to start there? At the molecular level? Yeah. Um, yeah, well... I don't want to scare everybody off. The book actually opens with a couple of chapters that sort of, I'll call them sort of throat clearing chapters that are about pioneers that really thought about the, what, what one called the wisdom of the body and another who talked about the economy of nature, Walter Cannon on the one hand and, and Charles Elton on the other. And I really want to emphasize that my approach in this book is storytelling, especially through the eyes of these pioneers who uh, made seminal discoveries and sort of coined, you know, key ideas. So um, I first just want to introduce the idea that people are thinking about sort of what gets 
what makes the things in balance in the body and what makes things in balance in nature. And those were ideas kind of taking place almost at the same time in the 1920s, um, you know, by entirely different people. Uh, I dive then into the sort of the molecular rules of what goes on inside the body because that's really been an incredibly fertile and important area for medicine. And the examples I highlight, uh, things like discoveries that totally changed the treatment of heart disease or totally changed the treatment of cancer was really to build up in the reader and the audience's minds, you know, the, the confidence that we have that when we understand the rules of something, we understand the key players in some process and we understand the rules they play by, that empowers us to intervene. And that's what's led to ever more powerful and impactful drugs, you know, medicines, for example. And I laid that foundation consciously because I really want to take the say, the analogous approach to sort of ecological health, which is understand the players, know the rules, and then you can do things to improve it. I do like the kind of extended analogy that you draw in the book between the health of the body and the health of an ecosystem. It, and the idea that problems that we see in the ecosystem can be thought of sometimes uh, like diseases and that we can treat them, uh, which I think is, is an attitude that's, that's good. It's not sort of hopeless or, uh, you know, there, there is something that we can do to improve things. Well, you're right. I mean, you're, you're kind of exposing one of my major themes of the book. So let me, let me, Address that for a second and then maybe double back to some specifics. Really, one thing I was doing in this book was asking myself as I researched the book, can we do anything about the state, the ecological health of the planet? Is it too late or is there time to change the road we're on? And I think if I'd come up with a negative conclusion, I, I wouldn't have written the book. I think there's enough gloom and doom out there. But I actually came to an, to the opposite conclusion. I found stories that gave me great and actually basis for hope, not just hope, not naked hope, but actually substantive hope, because there had been various things done at certain scales on the planet that had reversed uh, the damage that had been done and reversed it fairly quickly. And I thought that these were stories that were relatively undertold and that we need, just like in medicine, we need success stories to, you know, keep us motivated and keep us sort of, you know, focused on the future. So I, I tried to bring a, a number of those to light in the, in the course of the book. And you drew the analogy to the treatment of disease. And one of the overriding themes in the book is sort of what controls the number of everything, either the number of molecules of, you know, fat in your bloodstream, or, you know, the number of algae in a lake or the number of fish in a lake or, you know, the number of lions on the savanna. That this, this is what I, the, the central idea of the book is, you know, what controls the numbers of everything in nature. And when you look at a lake that's choked green with algae, or you look at a savanna that has no more lions, you generally see situations that are just like cancer, where something has run out of control, something has multiplied out of control. And what we need to do is to reintroduce or reset those controls to have a shot at the, that system coming back to some health and, and productivity. So one of the ideas that was new to me in the book, even as someone who reads a lot of science, is the idea of double negative regulation at the molecular level. So can you talk a little bit about how that works and how we figured out how that works? Sure. Let me start with an analogy. And it, the way we figured it out was to be thinking about it incorrectly for a long time. It's, it's human nature. If you see a car rolling down the street, 
you figure somebody has their foot on the gas. You haven't, you don't you first think, oh, somebody has released a brake. But it turns out that a lot of the checks and balances that exist in nature are brakes. They are constraints on multiplication, on, on constraints on increasing numbers. And so when you see increasing numbers, what's generally happened is that some brake has been released, either you know, by accident or, or, or on purpose. So what I mean by du- double negative control is, you know, one way that the amount of something can go up would be if, say, you know, the amount of something C goes up because, oh, you know, B causes C, right? B makes C go up. Or A inhibits B, which inhibits C. And so A makes C go up because it inhibits an, an intermediate. That's where a lot of logic exists in nature. And it took biologists a long time uh, to appreciate how common that logic was at various scales, that a lot of things are under double negative control. And uh, in fact, when I saw the amount of double negative, negative control out on the savanna or in other parts of, of nature, it reminded me so much of what I had experienced in my own research career of stories we had unpacked in the lab or important stories that others had unpacked in other labs that I thought, my goodness, this is a whole lot of double negative logic. And so I really emphasized it in the book. Can you give us uh, an example of some double negative logic acting at the molecular level kind of in the real world? Sure. Well, the real world, I mean, I'll tell you how it was first described and you can or discovered and you can tell me whether or not that's interesting. But if you feed a sugar to a bacterium, it's pretty fascinating that within minutes, the bacterium makes an enzyme that breaks that sugar down. And you'd sort of think, gosh, how does that happen? How does a, how does a brainless bacterium know to make the right enzyme to break down the right sugar? Pretty fascinating. And this is work that was done for about 25 years, led by uh, Nobel Prize winning biologist Jacques Minot in France. And what he and his colleagues discovered was that what happens is the sugar inhibits something that inhibits the production of that enzyme. So the enzyme is kept off all the time unless that sugar is there. And when that sugar is there, it inhibits something that keeps that enzyme off. So therefore, the sugar triggers the production of the enzyme. And that sort of logic is widespread. The way cell growth is controlled in our bodies, it's generally under negative control. Cells are kept in check. And so the signal to release a cell to grow, to divide, is generally the inhibition of an of a negative signal, double negative. A, ne- a double negative winds up being a positive. And we just see that uh, all over our bodies. And then out in nature, one of the really c- cool examples of, of double negative logic that um, that I learned about really kind of smacked me in the forehead when I learned about it has to do with the growth of kelp forests. You might say, well, why would kelp forests grow? But it turns out they're under double negative control. One of the negative controls of kelp forests are sea urchins. Given the chance, they'll mow kelp forests down to nothing. But sea urchins are in turn kept in check by sea otters. So sea otters, by eating sea urchins, allow kelp forests to grow. If the sea otters are gone, and this is what happened with the fur trade a century ago, Sea urchins take over and kelp forests disappear. So it's very weird and totally shocking to biologists to think that you have to have a predator around, sea otters, in order for plants like kelp to grow. But that's the way it works. 
So one of your Serengeti rules in the book is about how not all creatures or not all species are created equal, how some species in certain ecosystems kind of matter more than others. Is this a good example of that? Oh yeah, I mean the 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 sea otter right there is a has a disproportionate effect on everything in the community because by controlling sea urchin numbers and allowing the kelp forest to flourish, that kelp forest is habitat for all sorts of fish and other invertebrates, and it's also then those fish are food for eagles and shorebirds and things like this. And so communities that have sea otters have a whole lot of other animals too because of the kelp forest. And sea otter and communities without sea otters um, are really um, impoverished, you know, almost barren. So uh, a sea otter is what's known as a keystone species and has a disproportionate influence on the diversity of the community in which it lives. And this, too, was a really important discovery by ecologists beginning in the late 1960s into the 1970s that there were species like this that had this huge influence. Out on the Serengeti, for example, and this was a, a real wake-up call to me, um, I learned uh, through the work of ecologist Tony Sinclair, who worked out there for almost 50 years, that wildebeest are a keystone species on the savanna. Now, I'm going to just bet that almost every listener to this, you know, if you think of the Serengeti or you think of East Africa, if you've watched TV, you know, in the first 90 seconds of any TV program, you saw a cat chase down a gazelle or an impala or whatever. And you think that the way the whole thing works is, you know, this kind of, you know, blood and claw sort of, uh, of uh, system out there. But it turns out that that ecosystem, the African savanna and the Serengeti in particular, is groomed by a million wildebeest just humbly munching the grass. And that has dramatic effects on the landscape and on the habitat for all sorts of other animals. So the, the keystone can be something as, you know, uh, you know, like a sea otter. It can be a, a wildebeest. It could be a honeybee by pollinating lots of flowers. So we need to know these species that have disproportionate influence on places because when they're missing, those places are in rough shape. So with the wildebeest example, what happens when many or all of the wildebeest disappear from an environment like that? Yeah, well, that experiment was run by accident um, through a lot of the of the 20th century because a virus was accidentally introduced onto the Serengeti through domesticated cattle. And it suppressed the wildebeest population uh, dramatically. And that leads to a whole cascade of effects on places like the Serengeti. With very small numbers of wildebeest, um, the grass overgrows. And with more and taller grass, you have more and intense fires. And more and intense fires uh, means you actually inhibit tree growth. And with fewer trees, you have less food for things like giraffes. You have less nesting area for birds. You have less cover for predators. And of course, with fewer wildebeest, you also have less food for, for predators that would prey on wildebeest. So, um, we know that essentially that the, um, the numbers of wildebeest matters because biologists have seen the, the Serengeti in two states when wildebeest were relatively, um, uh, numerous after the removal of the virus and when they were much less numerous before the removal of the virus. And, uh, that's, that's how we know the wildebeest matter so much. So how common is this double negative form of regulation, uh, both at the molecular level and that you've kind of seen examples of in, at, in the ecology? 
pretty widespread uh, in, in food chains. So when you think about a food chain, the simplest food chain would have three levels. So that would have plants that are uh, pro- providing the primary source of food in a system, and they're using, you know, uh, sunshine and and uh, rainwater and the soil and all that to, to generate that food. Then there are animals that graze on those plants, and then there there may be predators around that that prey on those vegetarians. Well, anytime you have those sort of three levels of the food chain, you could have double negative control. You could have predators by controlling the number of grazers, by controlling the vegetarians, actually influences the vegetation. And in many places where it's looked, that's in fact the case that, um, you know, really the, the, the greenery could be eaten to nothing uh, if the plant eaters were given free reign, but they're actually kept in check by um, predators. That can be as simple as, you know, birds controlling the number of insects that feed on a tree. Um, And if you get rid of those birds, you can see really dramatic effects on the vegetation. It's kind of interesting because we usually think of a food pyramid or an ecological food chain as being driven from the bottom up on the availability of food so that the predators will disappear because there's a shortage of food for them to eat. Not necessarily that the, uh, the, the food chain can be damaged by those predators disappearing and wreaking havoc. Right. Right. That was a huge surprise to ecologists that, um, you're right. Bottom up thinking was, was, was pervasive. And the idea that systems could be controlled by the top from the top down by predators um, was a radical revolutionary idea in the 1960s. But it started to gather some steam in the 70s and 80s. I would still say that decades later, it's it's not generally widely appreciated, but there's a whole school of, of ecologists, and I've now met a good number of them, that think this is one of the most important discoveries in ecology particularly for the management of the planet, because humans have eradicated predators, you know, disproportionately to other kinds of animals. You know, we don't like predators like wolves and lions and bears and things like that. And in the sea, we like to eat big predators like cod and tuna and things like that. So we've had a really disproportionate effect over the last couple centuries on the abundance of predators um, all over the planet. And now that we know the key role of predators in so many systems, we're starting to understand um, what sort of uh, chain reactions that is let loose. But it's also not just predators who can be this kind of keystone species. Uh, your example of the Serengeti, I mean, you know, that's a good example of a situation where the, the vegetarian is actually the, the keystone of that particular food chain. So it is interesting that the keystone is not always at the same level. It can be sort of at any level. True. I, I mean, a pollinator, right? Bees are keystones. Um, you know, without them, uh, the plant community can collapse. And that relationship is sort of a mutual relationship. It's not a predatory one at all. So it's, um, it, it's just important to know, you know, who's having the largest effects in a system. And it's also important to understand that sometimes some things aren't that important to the diversity of a system. And Bob Payne, um, the late ecologist who discovered and coined the idea of keystone species, also did the systematic experiments to remove a whole bunch of other species from the system he was studying. He he discovered the role of keystones in Pacific tide pools, and uh, in this case, it was a predatory starfish that had a, uh, a disproportionate, a huge effect on the diversity of the tide pool. But he found that a lot of the other residents of the tide pool, if removed, really had essentially no effect on anything else. And so, 
there's there's kind of two sides to this coin, which is understanding what has a really strong effect, but also realizing that some things don't have that large an effect on the rest of the system. And we we have to have both both types of knowledge are valuable because we may be fretting sometimes about something that may disappear that just doesn't have, um, you know, any kind of domino effect on the rest of the system. And I can see how in a world like we have, where sometimes we do have to prioritize what species to save and what to not. And that hurts me in my feeling places to say that because, you know, we want to be able to preserve all of the diversity. But it seems like in a lot of cases, we do need to prioritize certain species or certain types of animals or creatures over others. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point about prioritizing. Yes, but but I think this is about combining science with management. And I, it's one of the things that I think I learned the most about in the course of researching and writing this book. And it's something that I want to you know, say the most about in, the, in, you know, in all the coming years, which is how important it is to have both good science and good management. And what I mean by that is we might think, oh, every species is important. We have to manage every one of them. And if something is, is fading away, we're going to be really concerned and we may spend a lot of time and money and energy trying to protect that, well, that we may feel, and that may be, you know, in some ways, a a noble sense. But because time, money, and energy are all limiting, we have to decide where to invest our, you know, where to prioritize. And then the science comes in. The science may say, look, uh, that's, you know, if some particular plant is disappearing from a community or maybe some, you know, small rodent or whatever it might be, uh, that may not be something we're going to invest a lot in restoring because we're maybe keeping an eye on other, um, you know, signals of, of the health of the system. You know, ideally, we try to keep systems intact. If we can manage places, both land and water, to be large enough that they can buffer themselves from changes that are taking place sort of from the outside in, that would be great. But a lot of places are not large enough to do that. And you know, they're going to, they're going to need some help or places have been, you know, because we've fished, farmed, developed, hunted, whatever we might've done, you know, over the last couple of centuries, you know, places are not, habitats are not as healthy and productive as they could be without a little bit of help. And that's that, as I said, that combination is science and management. Management might say, oh, don't touch anything here. But if we don't know from science whether the here is intact or we don't know from science that, that you know, what's important and what's not, then that's kind of a blanket policy. It's not very scientifically informed. On the other hand, if we do know something from science, but we don't put the management, you know, principles to work and we don't manage places well, well, then, of course, um, you know, things are going to unravel. And, you know, all through the, the, the sort of success stories I know about are – a combination of those two. That's also true of public health campaigns. I, I talk about the smallpox eradication effort in the book as a great example of international cooperation to achieve something really, really difficult. I think it's sort of a good case study for anyone who wants to sort of um, you know be motivated to tackle some of these ecological challenges. And again, the, the story of smallpox is a combination of, of science and management. And without, you know, Without one or the other, um, you're going to be in a, in a tough shape. It is definitely a book that illustrates really clearly in some, in some very key examples how important it is to match up the science and, and 
policy or the science and management, like you say, or science and politics. There has to be um, the will to go and do something and also an acknowledgement from science that we can't do everything, right? There is there is a limit to what we can do and a limit to what people will accept. Absolutely. Um, so there's sort of a, you know, there's a there's a pragmatism there. But I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sincere about, you know, matching it up with management because good managers and good long-term management you know, good managers are scarce and good long-term management is hard. Um, you know, managing things over a time scale, you know, consistently, um, thoughtfully, uh, you know, keeping our attention on some things. Uh, this is, this isn't easy to do if funding cycles are, you know, every year, every two or three years, or, you know, if certain administrations, you know, even on a state level emphasize something for four years and then it's a goes, goes away for four or eight years. Um, you know, it's, it, these things are hard to do. And, um, you know, whether you're thinking about, you know, lakes or uh, ocean fisheries or, you know, forests or things like this, they require some consistent and long term thinking. Definitely one of the take homes for me from the book is how both public health and ecological problems do require a lot of long term thinking, which, like you say, is not something we're very good at right now. <laughs> no, we're we're not. But I hope there's some examples um that give people some uh well, at least some case studies that give some people some things to point to, but also some again some some cause for hope. But in the book I talk about uh Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, uh which was really given up for dead uh after a protracted civil war that um annihilated most of its wildlife. It was a gem. It was a had great concentrations of, of African big game, elephant, buffalo, hippo, et cetera, uh, lions. And uh, in a 20-year civil war that, that you know, racked Mozambique, um, most of all of them were lost. Like, you know, 14,000 buffalo be, you know, were reduced to 50 and you know, 3,000 elephant down to maybe 100, this sort of thing. And um, that's really the way it would have remained were it not for an American philanthropist named Greg Carr who – um, after being in a telecommunications business in the 1990s, was looking for something to focus his business expertise, his interest in human development, and his interest in conservation. And he learned about Mozambique, and he learned about Gorongosa in particular, and in 2004 launched uh, a joint project with the Mozambican government uh, to restore Gorongosa. And people told him, he, he was crazy, there was they said, you know, there's nothing here. There's nothing to be saved. There's nothing to restore. It's a lost and, cause. Uh, a lost cause, a hopeless cause. And, you know, to put that in numerical terms, if you took all the animals, all the large animals that were in Gorongosa, antelope, uh, buffalo, elephants, hippos, etc., added them all up in the year, say, 2000, after this horrible civil war, there were fewer than a thousand large animals left in Gorongosa from the tens and tens of thousands that were there before. And uh, I was there last year when the scientists reported the annual census, and they're back to 71,000 large animals. Wow. And, in 11 years. And, and so, you know, a place given up for dead, you know, in a country with one of the lowest per capita incomes, um, you know, on the planet. And yet, because the habitat was still there, Nature is incredibly resilient, and that's one of the Serengeti rules. We, we saw it in the Serengeti in the 20th century when after that virus disappeared, populations of wildebeest and buffalo came roaring back. 
We've seen it with the protection of endangered species like sea otters and bald eagles and things like that, where they've come roaring back from very small numbers. And Gorongosa came roar is is uh, is roaring back, and on a you know for a human scale, a pretty short time scale. But if Greg was on air with us today, one thing he would say is what's so important is, and they just signed a, a 25 year extension of the uh, of that long term management um, arrangement between Cars Foundation and the Mozambican government is that you know this is a multi decade effort, and so. Um, you know, there's a long way to go. There's many things to pay attention to. They're off to a good start. Um, but that long-term view is really something that we have to have. Um, you know, if you said in, in 1970, I think Nixon declared a war on cancer. Well, I don't know what everybody's expectations were, but have we learned a lot about cancer in the subsequent 46 years? Oh, yes. Immense. But the first really specific tailored drugs real cancer specific killers didn't come about till about the year 2000 30 years after the declaration of the war on cancer so glad they did and that that, that first drug i actually describe its discovery and, and it's it's uh sort of the history behind it in the book but it it, it gave, it's now given rise to dozens of of other um really promising cancer drugs and uh you know, think about that. Uh, think think about how little discussion there is in our society of things that might take 30 or 40 years to do. Now, one thing, of course, that everyone's talking about is trying to halt the progression of climate change. And it means doing some things today that won't show up in the box score for decades or not doing something today that will show up in the in the coming decades. You know, we have difficulties with these kinds of investments and these kinds of decisions that, um, you know, where the payoff is, uh, either the penalty or the payoff is, is decades away. But nonetheless, if we look through history, we, we've been rewarded for making those kinds of investments. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. So with a case like Gorongosa, I mean, people hear that it went from only a thousand animals in that national park to tens of thousands. Um, sorry, it went down to a thousand and then it's been able to come back up again. Like, how does that happen? That seems like a Herculean effort of the likes that, that many people just can't imagine. Like, how do you bring in tens of thousands of animals or do you, is that where you start? Well, that's where Greg thought, that's where Greg did start. And that's he thought he was going to have to do. He brought in a couple hundred buffalo from Kruger National Park in South Africa. But that is a huge undertaking, like bringing in 200 animals the size of buffalo. And still wild. (laughs) Yes. Very expensive, very stressful on those animals. And think, you're trying to build back thousands and thousands of animals. But what turned out was the remaining animals that were there, if you protected them from poaching, from that excess mortality, 
all the all the habitat was there. It was, you know, it's an all-you-could-eat buffet. The place was virtually emptied out. So populations, particularly the vegetarians, have come roaring back. And some are doubling about every four years. And so there, most of those numbers have come from the reproduction of animals that were there. Um, and they're, and they're young. In other words, just explosive exponential growth as the place refills, um, you know, back towards the kind of populations that were there before. Um, he introduced, a, he, he brought back a handful of elephants, a handful of hippos, but really not enough to, to sort of make a dent. Those populations have largely rebounded from the remnant populations that were there. And in some cases, because there's, there are areas around Gorongosa where animals can migrate in from, some has also been immigration in from, from, from outlying areas. And that helps also to kind of mix up the gene pool so that populations aren't too inbred. But what Greg would say, I know, it's what he told me, is that, um, you know, it was a mistake. To, I mean, he, he now knows to not even worry about reintroduction. It's all about protection. And he, he put together about a 120-person ranger team um, that protects the, the wildlife in Gorongosa and does what it can to suppress the poaching. And um, that is is the major factor, the major uh, catalyst to the rebound of animal populations. So the other key one here was also that the habitat was still intact. There was still food available and land for these creatures to come back to once their populations started to rebound. It was really what allowed, in addition with protecting them, what allowed for the populations to rebound. But that also required some management on the human side because there are also people living in this area that are oh, yeah. would love to have that land well they do i mean there's, there's probably still a few thousand people living inside what would be the boundaries of the park so this is uh the really important 21st century message from from greg carr which is um this is a this project is about integrated uh development both conservation and human development and so uh carr and the gorongosa supporters have spent as much money outside the park as in and outside the park those investments are in Schools, health clinics, community education centers, farming programs, because by increasing crop yields and food security, you, you take some of the pressure off using the parkland as, as farmland. And of course, jobs. Uh, Carr's major motivation here was that, you know, the, the park has to be more valuable as a park than as a, you know, a larder or this thing won't work. And if it generates jobs, and if these other human development activities are successful, uh, then you can have both. And I know that the world, and I'm not exaggerating, that the world is looking at Gorongosa as a case study of a really 21st century integrated um, conservation uh, example, where the human development issues are taken as seriously uh, perhaps even more seriously than the conservation issues, because without them, we certainly know from other places around the world, um, the conservation efforts will fail. And um, I think the other message that that just shocked me is when you talk about something like this, there's somewhere near 200,000 people living in the development area around Gorongosa. And the park is huge. I want to say it's 30,000 kilometers or something like that. But I, you know, don't don't check me on that. It's big. It, it helps to have a helicopter to fly across it. And, I've, you know, what does it take to bring something like that back from the dead financially? Six million dollars a year. I was stunned. Peanuts. I mean, it's a substantial investment on the part of Greg Carr, but it's peanuts. We can't afford not to make those kinds of investments. Um, so, uh, you know, given what the world decides to spend its money on, uh, you know, isn't it worth trying to um, put a lot of the world's wildernesses and natural areas on sustainable trajectories? Because these places are really important to the 
to human um, survival. Gorongosa is the watershed that's going to feed, that's going to you know, provide water to all those hundreds of thousands of people around Gorongosa. If you clear cut the um, Mount Gorongosa, which is the major watershed, um, then all those people and livestock are going to suffer I- immensely. So we need these natural places because of the services they pr- provide humans. Um, and of course, the wildlife needs those places too. And it's not a ridiculous um, price tag um, for doing that. I think for me, what the most resonant part of Gorn Gosa is, is that conservation efforts are so often framed against development. So it's, it's an or situation. We have to conserve rather than develop. Um, but Gorongosa is really a, a case study in doing both simultaneously and making sure that there is room for both and that both are advancing because really one can't survive without the other. It, it is connected. So the framework of pick conservation or pick human development maybe a false dichotomy that we cling too hard to. Yeah, I, I think that's, you, you've hit it on the head. And um, when you see that it can work, it's hard work. You, you know, you're, you're having to deal with all the human institutions and, you know, all of, uh, you know, humanity's concerns, health, education, economic prosperity, right? I mean, these are, these are hard things to secure in a city, let alone, you know, around a, 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 a large wilderness. Um, but, you know, I think there are, there are places on the planet where this is doable. And, Maybe that's the other thing I, I sort of concluded in the course of, of researching this book is that, look, some places are, are not going to do well. I, I foresee a very patchy world in the future where some wildernesses are going to be obliterated and, um, and at the great expense of, of the people around it. You know, if you just even take something like the coastal oceans, um, you know, s- those are so important for human, uh, for, for supporting, you know, human civilization. But if we don't take good care of them, you know, they're, they're going to be worthless to, to a, a lot of countries. Um, well, that's going to have devastating effects on, on certain countries and certain populations. So I, I think that in places where there's time to, to do this work, where infrastructure might be built, where, um, you know, organizations can be strengthened. You can make this kind of progress in other places. I think we're going to see, you know, unraveling and, and, um, deterioration and perhaps, you know, chaos, uh, when, when natural areas vital to the support of human populations disappear. Um, you know, uh, in, in an ever-growing population, th- these could be catastrophic. Can you talk us through the Lake Mendota case study as well? Because I think <laughs> that's also a really good example for people to hear about uh, an example of I- conservation efforts that combines this kind of thinking that's that's somewhere in North America, that's somewhere in a, in a place that a lot of our listeners will feel is very familiar to them that's right next door. Sure. This is, this is I, I appreciate you picking up that example. I mean, freshwater lakes are, uh, or bodies of water, you can even be thinking of a small pond, are, are near where a lot of us live. And we've gotten used to seeing them, you know, kind of green, kind of you don't really want to step in them, you may not fish in them, there may not be any fish in there. You certainly wouldn't drink out of them. Um, so, but, but that's not the way they need be. And the story of Lake Mendota is it's a very large lake, um, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, where funny enough, uh, I've been based for almost 30 years. And in 1987, based on some pioneering research done on smaller lakes up in northern Wisconsin, 
an attempt was made to try to improve uh, water quality in the lake by flipping sort of the food chain that was in the lake. Now, you got to kind of draw a picture here from the bottom up. The food chain in these lakes, freshwater lakes, often consists of algae. And above the algae are small grazers, which are crustacea, um, you know, invisible to the naked eye, but they're there in the lake. And then above them might be small fish that actually feed on those grazing crustacea. And above them would be larger fish, predatory fish, things like um, walleye and bass and things like that. So the food chains often have about four, you know, about four levels in them in these lakes. In a, in a healthy lake. But what happens is often the large predatory fish disappear, um, either because they've been fished out or maybe due to pollution in the lake or whatever. And then what happens is the small fish eat those crustacea and then the algae are left sort of uncontrolled and can overrun the lakes and to make the lakes cloudier and poor water, water quality and all that. So it was discovered in small lakes that if you add back the, the larger predatory fish, um, you can actually flip a lake so that then those large predatory fish control the smaller fish, which then allows you to get more of those grazers, which eat the algae. And then the, so the algae counts go down and the water quality improves. Okay, so, so that's the picture. Add big fish at the top and you can change the density of algae. So this was done in small lakes, and they decided in 1987 to try to do this in Lake Mendota. And, um, you know, it was the Department of Natural Resources, the, the state agency was involved, and fishing clubs were involved, and it worked. Um, the large predators were reintroduced in the lake in, in large numbers, and in pretty short order, water quality improved, and those populations of larger fish were stable. Um, anglers had to accept um, some of the most restrictive fishing regulations on any lake, but they happily did that knowing that these very coveted fish were coming back in some considerable numbers. And so this was a, a really large-scale ecological experiment, you know, in, in 1987. And it's been repeated, to my understanding, several hundred times across the world um, to, to try to improve water quality in, in various lakes. Sort of thing I think that can be, um, you know, done at modest expense with pretty rapid results. So has this experiment at Lake Mendota had some staying power? I mean, you mentioned that it was done in the 80s. Is this something that they regularly have to put more of these predator fish into the lake in order to sustain this change? Or is it something that once you make that initial investment of fish, that it kind of becomes self-sustaining? In the Mendota case, they were stocking the fish for a few years. And the intention was to do it for a longer period of time. But I, there was was a, some management change or some funding change. And also they were taking a lot of fish from the state's fish hatcheries. And there were other parts of the state that wanted those fish. So, um, uh, and Wisconsinites take their fish very seriously. So, uh, but nonetheless, it, it's not been redone. So I think there's been some long-term gains. And I think in other cases uh, across the world, there've been stable long-term gains and probably maintaining those gains requires two things. First, that you don't fish out the large fish, so some restriction on what fishermen can take. And secondly, the inputs into the lake. The problem with lots of lakes is they get agricultural runoff. And the phosphate in agricultural fertilizers is rocket fuel for algae. It's, um, uh, it's a major stimulant to algae growth. And so um, if the inputs into the lake are really pumping up the algae population, the algae can just overwhelm any of the top-down control that's there. And so you look in places like Lake Erie um, in, in the Midwest, uh, there have been algal blooms in Lake Erie that are 100 miles long certain summers, uh, one so large in 2014 that it um, cut off the water supply to Toledo, Ohio, a city of a half million people. Um, so we, we do have problems with these algal blooms um, all across the world in lakes of all sorts of sizes. 
And generally, it's a combination of too much bottom-up input from agricultural runoff and too little top-down control. So for, for these lakes to get flipped into a more healthy, stable situation, we got to make sure we don't take out too much of the top-down control in the, in the form of fishing and that we don't pump in too much um, fuel to the algae. So this maps on pretty well with our Gorongosa case study as well. It's important to both protect what's there and not, you know, predate them all, but also to right. make sure that the habitat is in a good enough condition that the species there are allowed to to grow and and continue to exist and to continue to multiply and reach some sort of stable um, I don't know equilibrium might be too strong a word but some relatively stable numbers over time and um, you know that's what's ideal when I think about things like the lakes you know so many people I mean they want to swim in lakes they want to boat in lakes they want to fish in lakes they want lakefront property etc you know it it's it seems like it shouldn't be that complicated a political issue to have healthy lakes that are, you know, more productive. And a lot of our lakes just aren't anywhere near as productive as they could be. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that I think we have uh, a fair amount of control over. Obviously, the bigger the lake and the more borders it has, the more cooperation it takes. But um, this is something that I think we could see, you know, dramatically improve over the decades. In Lake Menendota, you mentioned that the fishermen there were willing to have some pretty strict restrictions placed on how much they could fish the lake. Are those restrictions still in place or have they been lifted? Um, I th- I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure some restrictions are still in place. Because you you do have to be careful about the most coveted fish being fished out. I mean, if there's just too many, you know, too many people fishing and too few fish, you know, you're going to hit that point. So um, I I think there are still restrictions. Whether those restrictions are even sufficient to maintain populations, you know, it also requires population monitoring. Um, you, you could you could set something up, but if you don't, you know, take census of of you know fish every now and then, you know, how do you know where they're at? And of course, there's seasonal, there's year to year fluctuations because of you know climate and you know how big was the mosquito brood in a given year, or goodness knows every other sort of variable. So this also requires monitoring, and that's that part of long term commitment is that. You know, great if you do this intervention, but you know, you got to keep an eye on things and use some scientific methodology to keep an eye on things. We generally are keeping an eye on things like, um, commercial fisheries in the oceans that, you know, there are agencies both in the U.S. and, the, and Canada that, um, monitor this carefully. They monitor the, you know, the, the haul that's taken in in any given year of different sorts of, you know, important commercial fish. And I think of about, uh, about 48 to 50 at my last reading of commercial fish that have been declared um, depleted in a, at any given time. About half of those have been built back by management. One of the great things about the ocean is if you don't go too far with these fish, you know, it's a big interconnected habitat and fish are incredibly productive, you know, reproductively, um, uh, you know, fertile. They make, they make a lot of babies. And so uh, you have the possibility for pretty rapid rebounds of fish populations if they're given some time some hands-off time. Um, it's a lot harder, you know, with things like elephants that you know, take a long time to reproduce and require a lot of land and, you know, move around a lot. Um, you know, those are harder populations to rebuild than, you know, uh, a, a given game fish, for example. This is probably going to sound like the most cynical question ever, but I'm going to ask it because I'm curious. Um, is there any concern that by knowing that nature is so resilient by, for example, knowing that Lake Mendota can be brought back once uh, it gets into such a bad state or that a place like Gorongosa can be brought back after it gets to really a lost cause state that people might be 
a little less willing to, or a little more willing to kind of let things get really bad. The sort of like, oh, it'll be fine. We can always bring it back. It only cost us $6 million a year. It's fine. Like the cynic in me, it, there's a little cynic on my shoulder that's worried about shouting this too loud because it does create a lot of hope, but it also is like, okay, well then this is a resource. We can just farm to near extinction and just bring it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's reasonable. I don't think it's widely appreciated that there is hope for some of these places. Um, and I think everyone understands that, you know, a, a little careful management is probably going to be less expensive and less painful than, you know, a hard inter intervention. I think commercial fishermen have learned, you know, repeatedly what happens when, you know, cod or lobster or tuna or whatever are fished to exhaustion. You know, the whole fishery can collapse and, you know, thousands and thousands of people can learn, lose their jobs, you know, permanently. Um, so I, I, I think that we've, we've learned enough over the decades of, you know, in, in economically important areas that we don't want things to get to that lower level, um, where, you know, where it's going to require a long, um, a long recovery period and, and a fair amount of management. And we also don't know that every place can be brought back. The fact that some places have been brought, have been brought back doesn't mean that, um, there are not places that are beyond the point of no return. Obviously, when, when, you know, some things are gone, gone, you know, some species are gone. If you don't reintroduce them or if they're not around anywhere anymore, um, you know, you, you can't bring them back. And we also don't know whether some sort of state changes can happen in habitats where, in fact, reintroducing things might not reverse what was there before. It wasn't known, for example, I'll give you an example out of Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. that um, the reintroduction of wolves there has had dramatic effects on elk populations, which in turn have had dramatic effects on vegetation like aspen and willow and cottonwood. But wolves were gone for 70 years out of Yellowstone, and certain things happen in Yellowstone that are not reversible by putting them back. Um, some of the stream erosion and changes in sort of the, how the water flows through Yellowstone, um, you, you don't get that back by just putting wolves back in and having some of the, the vegetation regrow. So we don't know when something has been in a certain state for a certain length of time, we can't be certain that we can flip it back to another state. So it's hope, but we should be cautiously hopeful. We should be cautiously hopeful. We should keep trying and we should learn, for example, from experience, what what conditions do we need that, that, that make a place flippable and what conditions mean a place may be um, you know, terminal. Um, so, uh, you know, at, at the moment, the number of places in decay versus the number of places that have been restored, you know, it, it, they just massively outnumber the, 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 the success story. So, um, you know, we, we should be cautious that there's a lot of places under intense, um, pressure in various parts of the world. And I think that there's a huge gap in public knowledge of what it means to lose those places in terms of effects on, on humans. Part of that is that some of those effects are just, are they remote at a distance? Uh, I'll give you an example in East Africa. In the highlands of Kenya, there's a forest, which is part of the watershed for the Mara River. And the Mara River, I don't know how many countries it winds up touching, but it's a really important um, water source, both for Kenyans and Tanzanians, but also for the migration across the Serengeti, etc. Well, under human settlement pressure, that forest was heavily deforested um, in recent times. And that is killing the Mara River watershed. Um, that forest is really important to, for that for that ground to act as a sponge, to soak up water and to release it slowly throughout the year, as opposed to just running off, um, you know, when the rains come. 
And, you know, people are going to feel the effects of a, of a Mara River, of a, the degradation of the Mara River, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away on their ability to get water for their families and for their animals and things like this. And so, you know, there's, there's, just, um, there's just a lot to be done to prevent sort of short-term catastrophes. And I assume with something like the Mara River, it's even further complicated by the fact that it does touch so many different countries. So it's not just one country like Mozambique that you can go into and start work. There's there's a lot of negotiation and diplomacy and, and communication that has to happen between all of those different stakeholders, which I assume makes the process even more difficult. It is it is more difficult. It, you know, it's that combination of science and management, and if you've got a lot of parties involved in the management that might have conflicting interests. It's tricky. Um, you know, I, I would give Canada and the U.S. relatively decent marks for the management of its ocean fisheries. Certainly, over recent decades, there are there are some, uh, you know, some bad stories in uh, in the past. But there's, I think, I think there's been a, there's a fair lot of good stories there. But the Mediterranean, I don't know, 26, 28 countries fish the Mediterranean. It's in deep, deep, deep trouble. So, um, you know, there's there's been many emergency meetings about the Mediterranean fisheries, but um, it's been very hard to wrangle all of the interested countries and to balance sort of small scale fishing of some countries and, you know, individual villages against, you know, commercial fisheries and things like that. So um, very, very tough. But while while the humans are all talking, the fish are disappearing and some will never come back. It's a really good reminder that with all of the science and all of the talent and skill sets within science, there are other skill sets we need to take what we've learned from that science and make positive changes in the world. And, and there's a lot of skill sets that a lot of scientists don't have that we need politicians and we need managers and we need bureaucracy to get us through those, those processes. Sure. sure, you need leadership and you need, you need people who understand how human organizations work. Of course, also what makes humans tick. And uh, no, science doesn't have all the answers. That's why I would combine it. You know, it's it's science plus management, and you don't necessarily get that in the same body. Um, it you know it takes a, a you know groups of people working together with different expertise for sure. Anytime you see success, um, you know that that is almost you know invariably going to be due to uh, a team, perhaps a very large team of people with you know complementary and overlapping uh, skills. Science can save the world on its own, people. Amen. Sean, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a really great book, really interesting. Thanks. I hope uh, hope your uh, listeners in, enjoy some of the stories there, and I've enjoyed chatting. Thanks. If you want to learn more about Sean Carroll, his book, or his work, you can find links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. 
You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.